Welcome to the Parkway Fellowship Podcast. We hope that God speaks to you through this message from Pastor Mike McGowan. How many of you remember the movie Sandlot? You remember that? Yeah, baby, I remember that. That was awesome. Um, so anyway, hey, welcome to the park. I'm so glad you're here. And look, there's, there's lots of things that I wish I had been there to see in person. Some things in the recent past, you know, some things in the distant past. Um, like, you know, like I wish I had been in L.A. last year when the Astros won Game 7, right? Wouldn't that have been awesome? Oh, that was incredible. What a great thing. Um, I wish I, like, I wish I could go to Times Square New Year's Eve, like, just to see it one time. I wish I'd been there at the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Like, how cool would that be? I wish I was on one of the Blackhawks when they went and took down Osama bin Laden. Like, not on the one that crashed, like, I would, the other one. Like, that's the one I would have been on, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wish I, had, I wish I was there when God etched the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets and gave them to Moses. Like, how cool would that be? I wish I was, I wish I was there at the filming of the original Star Wars. And I could have whispered to George Lucas, like, this is going to be big. You know, I mean, that would have been cool, right? So anyway, so for the next four weeks, we're going to look at some of the greatest events in the entire Bible. And we're going to picture what it would be like if we were there in person when it happened. Because look, here's the deal. If we don't ever put ourselves in these stories, then we'd run the risk of thinking that, that they're just fables or fairy tales or just myths from days gone by. I mean, no, we, we think that they're good for children, but we miss out on the fact that God put them in the Bible for us so that he could teach us some important lessons about life and about himself, about ourselves. Because look, here's the deal. If we don't think that these stories are true, then we do. We run the risk of just thinking these things are just legend and they're not real. Or if we only half-heartedly believe them, we tend to make half-hearted commitments in following God. And so we need to really look at these stories and imagine what it's like to put ourselves there in that moment. Because here's the deal. When we doubt what God has done in the past, then we doubt what God will do in the future. But conversely, if we're confident about what God's done in the past, then we're confident about what God can do in our future. So we're going to put ourselves in these stories because sometimes we forget that like, these events actually happen. They happen to real people in real places. And some of these places you can still go to today. In fact, I've had the privilege of going to Israel, and I've been to many of these places. In fact, I've been to the place that we're going to talk about today. I've been to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'm telling you, it's one of my very favorite places in all Israel. And I think that by the time we get to the end of today, you're going to see why. So go ahead and pull out your message notes and let's get started. And if you want to follow along in a paper Bible, go ahead and get that out. Or if you want to follow along in your phone, get that out. Um, or if you just want to use the scriptures that are printed for you, that's fine too. So let's get started. If I was there in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night Jesus was betrayed, here's what I would have seen. The first thing I would have seen is this. Number one, write this down. I would have seen an olive press. 
I would have seen an olive press. Look what the Bible says in Matthew uh, 26, verse 36. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane is the Hebrew word for olive press. So somewhere by the word Gethsemane, I just, just write the words olive press because that's what that word actually means. So Jesus went to the garden of the olive press. And so um, the garden of Gethsemane, it, it wasn't a garden like you and I think of a garden, okay? It was actually an olive grove. And so um, there are olive trees there. In fact, there's olive trees there today. It looks a lot like it did 2,000 years ago, except for now they've made some stone paths so that people can walk on it. But look, they still harvest olives from the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it looks a lot like it did 2,000 years ago. In fact, I brought a couple of pictures of it. So let's put picture number one of the Garden of Gethsemane up there. So you can see, like, this is the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's just rows and rows and rows of these olive trees. So you can see one of the stone paths that you can walk on in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's go to the next picture. Um, this is a picture of some more mature olive trees, and you see the stone path there. And some of these olive trees in the garden are more than 1,000 years old. Olive trees can live to be about 2,000 years old. I mean, there, and there are some enormous trees there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, let's take that down. Um, but since it's called the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Olive Press, that means that that night, one of the things you would have seen in the garden is an olive press. Okay, so like, well, what does an olive press look like? Well, there is a, a first century olive press that's on display in Israel, and so I brought pictures of it with me. Let's put the picture of it, first picture up there. There's actually two parts to the olive press. Here's part one, and then, by the way, this thing is huge. I mean, it's like, this, it's like this big around. And so what they would do is they would take the olives, they'd put them in that trough, and imagine a pole sticking up out of the middle, and then a pole coming laterally that would have gone through the grinding stone and would attach itself to a, an animal, like a donkey or an ox, and then they would, it would walk around, and it would grind the olives into a paste. And so then they would take this olive paste, and they would put it in mesh bags, and they would take it to the second part of the olive press, which is right beside it. And so let's go put the second part of the olive press up there. It's this. And this, again, this thing is huge. It's enormous. They would take all the bags and put them in, this, in the hole in the middle. So let's outline that. Um, Let's go ahead and outline the hole. There you go. They put all the bags in the middle, and then they would put a stone on top, and it would crush the olives, and the olive oil be would begin to rise to the top, and it would come through these channels and fill up the trough on ring on the side. So let's go ahead and outline that so that it's easier to see. So it would fill that out, and then they would take a stone a jar, and they would hold it next to the spout. The spout is on the bottom. Let's go ahead and highlight that so people can see it. They would put it next to the spout, and the olive oil would fill their jar, and they would just keep filling it up until all the olive oil was finished, okay? So let's take away all that so that, you know, we, now we can see it. Now, when they first put the bags in there, without putting a salt, just the weight of the bags would cause some of the olive oil to rise to the top. You know what that first round of olive oil is called that comes to the top? Yeah, it's called the virgin olive oil. Like, that's the stuff that you buy in a store, and that's the very best olive oil. So it was the best olive oil to eat and to use on food, and they would use it for anointing kings, and they would use it for other spiritual purposes. And then as they added the, the stones on top of the more olive oil, the second round would come to the top, and that olive oil was also used for eating, but it was also used to, um, to put on minor wounds because olive oil has healing properties. 
And then as they would put more stone on top and really crush the olives, then that third wave of olive oil would come to the top, and it wouldn't be very good to eat. They would use it for fuel, like for oil lamps, that kind of thing, okay? But regardless, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you would have seen an olive press just like this. Now, the original olive press in the garden is not there anymore. It's gone. We don't know where it is. But you would have seen something that looks just like this, okay? So let's take that picture down. So here's the second thing that you would have seen. If you were there that night, number two, you would have seen this. You would have seen 11 sleepy dudes, okay? Yeah, that's the next thing. You'd have seen 11 sleepy dudes. Let's look at what the Bible says in Matthew 26 as we continue. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Remember, that means olive press. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. And we're going to talk about what Jesus prayed in a minute, so we're going to skip that part. Let's go down to verse 40. Then he returned with his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then he went away a second time and prayed. And let's skip down to verse 43. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time. Let's skip down to verse 45. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now look. I, we're, we're pretty hard on the disciples were falling asleep in the garden against somebody. Okay, but look, let's try to put ourselves in the scene for just a second, okay? These guys have just finished a really long, heavy meal with Jesus. A meal which we now know as the Last Supper. And it would be really late at night because not only was it really a long meal, but then they would have had to walk across the city, outside the city gates, and to the Garden of Gethsemane. So it's probably somewhere between 10 p.m. and midnight by the time they get to this. And so the Jesus tells them, hey, you guys, you sit here still in the dark, and I'm going to go over there and pray. So that, that's what they're facing. So look, I don't know about you, but like when my family finishes our meal at Thanksgiving, okay, and I go sit in the chair, like I don't even make it to halftime of whatever game that we're watching. Like I'm, I'm out. So if I was there that night and we just had this big heavy meal and like my stomach is all full and it's dark and it's late night and Jesus said, sit still here in the dark and pray. Well, I'm going to tell you, like I'm going to be sitting still in the dark, but I ain't going to be doing much praying. Like, I mean, it's just, it just, it just natural. What happened, right? So we don't need to be too hard on the disciples with all that. All right. So, but... If you're, so if you're there the night, you would have seen 11 sleepy dudes. But a stone's throw away, you'd have seen something else. Here's the third thing that you'd see. You'd see a man, a rock, and a choice. You'd see a man, a rock, and a choice. Let's look at the part that Jesus prayed while the disciples were sleeping. Verse 39. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. This is Jesus. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. 
And so he finds the disciples sleeping, so he goes back, and here's what he prays again, verse 42. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. So so Jesus tells the disciples, hey, you guys stay here and pray. I'm going to go off and I'm going to pray in this other part of the olive grove. And the Bible says that Jesus prayed with such intensity because he was so overwhelmed with anguish that he began, when he began to pray, like sweat began to pour off his face like drops of blood, okay? It doesn't say that sweat just beaded up on his forehead. He prayed so it was pouring off his face like drops of blood. In fact, look what it says in Luke twenty-two forty-four. 44. It's written, written there for you. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Incredible. So, Here's the deal. In the Garden of Gethsemane, there was this huge rock. In fact, this rock is still there today. Uh, here's a picture of it. I took a picture of it last time I was there. This is a huge rock. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you can go there and you can pray on this rock. Now, tradition has it that Jesus, when he was praying this prayer, thy will be done, he was praying next to this rock. And honestly, it kind of makes sense that Jesus would be praying next to a rock and not just like on the ground, because when he, when he sweated like drops of blood, it would have fallen on a rock. And so that, remember, Jesus was by himself, so how do we even know that this happened? Probably, after Jesus was arrested to take away, his disciples came back, saw what was on the rock, kind of pieced it together, and probably confirmed it with Jesus after he rose again, which is how we know what happened. And so it would make sense that it would have happened on the rock, because otherwise it would have been on the ground. It would have just disappeared. We would never know. And this rock is still there. Like, you can go and you can pray, put your hands on it. You can pray on this rock, just like these people are doing. Now, this rock is inside the church because, like most holy sites, they've enclosed it in a church to preserve it. But I'm telling you, like, it is a spiritually powerful place especially when you can go put your hands on it so now that you got the lay of the land let's imagine what it would have been like if we were there that night okay i, I want to read the rest of the story from the bible and then we're going to watch a clip from the movie the passion of the christ and as we watch that movie i want you to imagine what it would have been like if you'd have been there because they get it right because it's in an olive grove and not just a garden, okay? Let's read the rest of the story, what happens there that night. In Matthew 26, beginning verse 46, the Bible says this. Jesus talking, he says, Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you not think that I can call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that, set, uh, filled that say it must happen this way? 
At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come at me with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. So let's watch this clip and imagine if you were there that night. Papa, kulit kehu, hengahel, kastige ite mini, akin lakis pa, lehuay di lakis pa. So if we were there on that night, you and I would have come to at least three conclusions, and here they are. Here's the first one. Write it down. 
that the Lord has a purpose for everything. The Lord has a purpose for everything. I mean, look, of all the places that God could have led Jesus to go, of all the places that God could have sent Jesus that night, he sends him to the Garden of the Olive Press. Why? Because God was sending the message that just as olives are crushed, so will be the body of my son. That Jesus will be crushed for you and for me. That, I mean, Jesus was about to endure the most horrific torture, beating, whipping, and then crucifixion imaginable. Look, if you've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, like, you know how graphic it really is. Look, and I don't watch rated R movies, and I don't ever endorse rated R movies. But this is the one exception. Because what happened to Jesus was rated R. It was that horrific. And he went through it for you and for me. Why? Because unless Jesus took the punishment for your sins and for mine, there is no forgiveness of sin. There's no way for us to be forgiven. There's no way for us to go to heaven. There's no way for us to have a relationship with God. Why? Because look, sins have to be paid for. God just can't just say, oh, don't worry about it, and just dismiss sin. No, no. The Bible says the only way that sin can be forgiven is through the shedding of innocent blood. That's why Jesus had to die. He was willing to shed his innocent blood by being tortured, whipped, and put on the cross for you and for me so that his blood could purchase our forgiveness for all of our sin. I mean, I mean that was huge. And God did it because he had a purpose. God had a purpose for sending Jesus that night to the Garden of Gethsemane. Because God could have sent him anywhere to pray in the city. He could have sent him anywhere in the countryside, but he sent him to the Garden of the Olive Press for a purpose. And it was to benefit you and me. Look, and God's got a purpose behind everything that he does in your life too. Everything that happens in your life has a purpose. Now look, I didn't say that God causes everything to happen in your life. Some things that happen in your life are a result of people's sinful choices. God does not cause us to sin, okay? We do that all on our own. But even when we go through difficult times because of sinful choices, God can still use it for his purposes. I mean, look, look at the Garden of Gethsemane. Some of the worst things that ever happened, happened there, and God used it for his purposes. Look, my point is, is that God has a purpose for everything that happens in your life. He's got a purpose for you at your job. He's got a purpose for you at your school. He's got a purpose for you for living on your street for your, the, your neighbors. He's got a purpose for every friend that he's ever brought into your life. He even has a purpose for you being at this church today. God has a purpose for everything that happens in your life. And so look, so no matter what happens, either good or bad, you say, okay, God, pray, pray and ask him, God, what are your purposes? What are you trying to accomplish in my life? And if he shows you, say, okay, God, then do that, whatever that, accomplish that purpose in me or use me to accomplish whatever purposes that you're trying to accomplish in this world. Because God does everything for a purpose. Here's the second conclusion that you come to. The second conclusion is this, is that prayer matters. 
Prayer matters. Remember how the disciples were asleep when they should have been praying? I and mean, if you were there, you conclude, man, prayer matters. Because look, how often are we asleep at the wheel when it comes to praying? Look, and I'll, look, I'll, and I'll confess. Like, there's been times, like, I've been praying, and like, I've fallen asleep. Like, man, that's happened, okay? Okay, don't look so smug. Okay, if you're a Christian, you've done that too, okay? I mean, don't you lie in church, pretend like that hadn't happened. Okay, it's happened to everybody at some point in time, right? Okay, now, I'm not actually talking about, like, falling asleep while we were praying. But what I, what I really mean is that we don't pray like we should. We, we really don't pray like we should. Like, we don't pray for our spouse like we should. We don't pray for our kids like we should. We don't pray for the people that we know that are far from God like we should. Most of the time, we pray prayers that are just largely self-serving, don't we? Now look, that's not altogether bad. I mean, that, that is a genuine part of prayer. But look, let me ask you this. If God came to you and he said to you, I'm going to answer every prayer that you prayed yesterday that doesn't benefit you, what would be different in our world today? How would your spouse be different today? How would your kids be different today? Which of your friends would now be going to heaven today because of the prayers you prayed yesterday? Look, I'm telling you, prayer matters. So would you join me in changing the way that we pray and saying, okay, God, I'm going to pray like you asked me to pray. Would you make a commitment to do that? All right, here's the third thing that you come to. Third conclusion is this. Is that letting go of my will to embrace his is critical. Letting go of my will to embrace his is critical. I mean, when Jesus prayed, he prayed the prayer, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Man, man that is huge. I mean, that's a one-line prayer, but I'm telling you, it is so incredibly powerful. Because look, Jesus knew what he was about to go to. He knew he was about to face the cross he knew that his body was going to go, about to go through a crushingly painful time, which is why Jesus prayed, God, if there's any other way, if there's, if there's any other way, but yet not my will, but your will be done. Look, and I think the temptation for Jesus to bail out was huge, okay? Because remember, the Bible says that Jesus could have prayed at any moment for 12 legions of angels to come to his rescue. How big was a legion? A legion was 5,000 Roman soldiers. So if he was praying for angels, that means that Jesus could have prayed and immediately, in a nanosecond, 60,000 angels could have come to his rescue and wiped out every living person within miles of Jesus. And all Jesus had to do at any time during his arrest, during his beating, during his crucifixion, all he had to do was just say the word, come, or now. And it would have all been over. It would have been over. But if he had done that, my only chance to go to heaven would have been over too. Our only chance to go to heaven would have been over. Our only opportunity to have a relationship with God would have been over. And so Jesus said, God, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus embraced 
God's will and set aside his own. I'm telling you, if you and I were there in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think that's the biggest thing we would have come away with. Because look, more than anything, the garden is a place of surrender. It's a place where we surrender. We say, okay, God, not my will, but your will be done in my life. I think that's the biggest thing that we would have come away with. And look, most of the time, yielding to God's will is a, is, is, is a really good thing because it's filled with goodness and it's filled with freedom and it's filled with joy most of the time. But not all the time. Sometimes surrendering to God's will is hard. And we do go through difficult times. But it doesn't matter. God asks us to let go of our will and embrace his. So would you make a commitment to pray? Okay, God, not my will, but your will be done in my life. Let me close with this. Look, the whole reason that Jesus even went through all this was so that your sins and my sins could be forgiven. I mean, he endured all that he went through so that he could purchase your forgiveness and mine. And so do you see that if we would just reject what Jesus did, how hurtful that would be to God, that he's let his one and only son be tortured, beaten, and crucified so that you and I could find a way to heaven so that we could be forgiven, so we could have a relationship with God. And so if we don't do that, do you see how hurtful that would be to God? Yeah. And so look, I'll say this. If you've never asked Jesus Christ to come into your life to forgive you, if you've never done that, there's a prayer that you can pray. It's in your message notes. I want you to take a second. I want you to pray that prayer right now. If you're ready to become a Christ follower, if you're ready to accept God's forgiveness through Jesus for you and make a commitment to follow him, then take a second. I want you to pray that prayer now. I want you to pray that prayer right now while I pray for everybody else, okay? So everybody, bow your head, close your eyes. Let me pray. Father, thank you for being willing to send your son. And Jesus, thank you for being willing to come, to be willing to sacrifice yourself, Jesus for us, that you'll be willing to be crushed for us, that we could pray a different way, a more powerful way, and that we could pray that the will of the Father would be done in our lives. So I, I pray for every person here that they would begin to yield to the will of the Father for our lives because, Jesus, of what you've done and what you did in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. Thank you for letting us be able to picture it a little bit clearer. Use it in our lives. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. For more information about Parkway Fellowship, find us online at parkwayfellowship.com. You can also download our mobile app for access to the most recent messages, video content, and much more.